Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn it open to James chapter 5. James 5. It's so good to see you uh, this morning. And uh, we're going to finish our series on James, Wisdom to Live By. Uh, we've been going, if you're new with us, we've been going through the book of James, kind of section by section, for eight weeks. This is the eighth week, and we've been doing it one-on-one, uh, mentoring each other in the way of Jesus uh, throughout the weeks, uh, meeting with each other over the last seven weeks. Hopefully that's been fruitful for you. Anybody, that fruitful meeting, mentoring? Nope? Okay. That's the discouraging way to start out my mind. I shouldn't have asked the question. Um, I'm sure it's been fruitful for you. I feel like I need to like try that again. Like it has been fruitful for you, hasn't it? Right. Okay. I'm gonna approach it like a Jedi mind trick. Um, okay. So James, um, all, his, his his real name is actually Jacob, and it's been translated as James. And so Jacob is actually the half brother of Jesus, and he wrote this letter. Uh, he was a uh, apostle a leader in the Jerusalem church. He was a pillar in the church in Jerusalem, and he lived through extraordinarily difficult times. Um, He led the church through its first persecution, where Christians were being jailed and killed, and he, in fact, was murdered for his faith in Jesus, and he writes us this letter. So you have a very hardcore guy writing a very hardcore letter about Christian faith in the midst of suffering. And so this letter of Jacob, or James, is a summary of his sage wisdom. It reads a lot like the Old Testament book of Proverbs. If you try to find an outline to the book of James, you just kind of can't do it. You get some themes in chapter one that are woven through 12 independent teachings throughout the rest of the book, and they don't relate in any kind of linear fashion. They just are like, oh, that makes me think of another thing. And and here's another thing. And they're woven together through these themes. And so each of these teachings stands alone, but is connected together. And so we're going to dive in to the final bit of James James's teaching on wisdom in the way of Jesus. Let's jump in to verse 7, all right? He says, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn rains or autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. And you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Okay. Well, there we go. Let's do it. All right. So James is going to exhort us in a really clear direction, right? He's nothing if not clear, isn't he? And so three things we're going to look at today is a long passage. We could probably do a mini-series on this last chapter, but uh, we're going to look at three things. He exhorts us towards this posture of patience, uh, a practice of prayer, and a pursuit of restoration. Um, let's take a look at this first bit. He, he ends where he began. He began his letter encouraging churches scattered throughout the Mediterranean world being persecuted. He says, live with joy in the midst of trials. 
He says, God uses all those various troubles and trials and circumstances in our lives to make us complete, he says. Perfect, that is to bring us to the end that we are meant to have, mature. And so he began saying, God uses all these trials to make us complete. And now he reminds us to remain in a posture of patience in light of the fact that God is going to complete all things when he returns. Therefore, he says, be patient. Be patient. It's an imperative. It means do this, right? It's something to do. It goes on your to-do list. Be patient. It's a posture in all of life's circumstances. It's this directive in light of everything that he has said so far about how God is going to bring maturity and completeness through difficulty. Like that's, that's how he does stuff. Uh, he says, trials are happening. You're being oppressed by the rich. These things are going on. Be patient. And what's the reason that James gives us to be patient in the midst of a world that isn't as it ought to be? He says, because the Lord's coming is near. Okay, what is patience all about then? It's about a posture that refuses to be anxious. It's a posture that has peace, not trying to control the situation, trusting that time is not going to disrupt God's purposes. That's what impatience is. Impatience looks at time and goes, God is somehow smaller than time and time is going to disrupt God's good plan for my life, right? And we we become threatened by time as if the Lord were not sovereign over even that. And so it's hard for us because we wanna think that we're omniscient, that we know everything. And uh, the problem is, we don't, right? We just simply don't. Um, And so we know a lot of things and we mistake it for knowing everything. And that makes us impatient people. Holiday season is coming, right? This is where where we get ready to do a lot of waiting. You're gonna be waiting at restaurants, you're gonna be waiting in traffic, you're gonna be waiting in stores maybe, unless you've managed to do all of it on Amazon. My hat's off to you, right? But um, someone, inevitably in any one of these scenarios is in line and they're not getting the attention they want, they're not getting the things that they want and they pester the host of the restaurant or they cut the line and they make a scene. And we all kind of love this because you know that they're going to leave, which makes you closer to the front of the line. You're like, yeah, get out of here. We don't throw your temper tantrum and leave because I'm just, that makes me five minutes closer to a table, right? But we, we all see this, right? Eventually, you know, people just make too much of the time. And so impatience is that angst that we feel when we're not in control. It's that angst that we feel when things are not going according to our plans and our purposes. And so what's James saying here? He's saying, look, be patient until the Lord's coming. Persist in staying faithful to Jesus and his character. And patience, by the way, is not a passive sport. Patience is a persistent thing. It's persistently doing Jesus-y things in spite of other things going terribly wrong. Um, Even under oppression, right? Because your suffering doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow not king. He is, and James says that that's actually foundational to our ability to be faithful. He's a king who is returning, and that's the hope, he says. You can be patient here because there's a day coming when God will return, when he'll set all wrongs right, and that wait, James says, is worth it. It just is, it's worth it. If you wanna use economic terms, there's a payout at the end of history that's greater than all of the losses we've incurred, okay? That's what James is getting at. 
The, the weight is minuscule in light of glory. We don't see it. We only get glimpses. We have a resurrected Jesus who Paul says is the first fruits of what's to come. Victory over death and decay and disorder. That's coming for all in Christ. And so he says his coming is near. What is his coming? What is his arrival or uh, that day of his coming? Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, halfway through 24 and into chapter 25. And he talks about the day of the arrival or the coming of the Son of Man. And he describes it and he tells these stories to help us have an imagination about this coming. And he says it's kind of like a master who returns from a long journey and now he comes and he holds his servants accountable. Or it's like a great wedding banquet where there's joy for all who are prepared to join in the celebration. Or it's like a master who gives his resources to use and then he goes off on a journey and then comes back and, and, and sees what his servants have done, right? And then he rewards them with what they've done for him. It will be a day of reward and a day of judgment. You know why you can be patient? Because every single wrong will be judged. You know why you can be patient in the face of injustice? God's going to hold it accountable, right? Uh, And so we don't have to revenge ourselves. He will bring justice that will be more thorough and complete than we can imagine, and it will also be redemptive. We don't have to be anxious about how long the world's wrongs are going to continue because he says the judge is at the door. And Paul talks about this coming of the Lord as a day of resurrection where our broken, sinful, failing, frail bodies will be made whole and complete. And so waiting seems fleeting. He compares it to an agricultural metaphor, right? It's like the rains and the autumn and the spring. A farmer does his work of tilling and sowing, and they wait patiently, knowing there's nothing they can do to coerce the sky to rain. They trust its certainty is going to come. So the next thing that James says is not only are we patient with the Lord and we trust his sovereignty and his timing, he says we need to be patient with each other in our relationships. Look at verse nine. He says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Okay, what does this have to do with patience? Oh, it has everything to do with patience, doesn't it? Right? Now, okay, sorry, but we all have grumbles, don't we? I mean, you are here today with some grumbles. We have a bent towards grumbling, right? Our impatience with others takes the form of a complaint, right? It takes a form of a grumble. Oh, this person, they're too this, or they're not enough this, or they always whatever. Oh, you have grumbles today, right? We all do. And why does James say don't grumble against each other? Because you don't really have any good reason to grumble? That it's actually, you should, there's no real good reason to grumble, so. No, he says, don't grumble because he knows every one of us have a great justification for every one of our grumbles. He's like, you're absolutely right. They do drive you crazy. That is messed up, right? But he says, don't grumble. Don't grumble. He knows every one of us has a good cause to grumble over other people. It's very tempting to be a judge in that case. But if you give in to your grumbles, it serves as an antidote to the character of patience. See, uh, grumbles are a sort of kind of evaluation, right? Where we kind of say, here's my judgment of the person. Here's kind of my assessment of their total life, right? And I know all that I know about them, but a a grumble refuses to acknowledge the stuff that I don't know, And James says the real judge is at the door. He knows what you don't. He's full of compassion and mercy. 
And so patience is thwarted when we give in to our complaints against others. And we do this thing, when we give in to our grumbles, we minimize this lifelong process that the theologians call sanctification, that is the process where God, by his spirit and our participation, makes us more like Jesus. And what we do when we grumble against other people is we kind of short, shortcut sanctification. And we kind of go, you know, they should be at the end of that process now, right? And we just kind of cut out their future. We go, well, they're this. Well, would we like anybody else to do that to us, right? No, we want, like, sanctification is lifelong. I've got a lifetime to be more like Jesus. But you, you need to be like him right now in the way that I want you to be like him right now, right? So that's what grumbling does, right? It just completely blows up sanctification as a lifelong process. And so James says, this Jesus way, this way of wisdom must be postured with patience toward God and toward others. It means that I approach life circumstances with a faith that God is going to set things right, that he is not late, that he's never been late. He's exactly on time to make me complete in the ways that I need to. And that includes the people in my life, that there is a lifelong process where God is not finished with them and thanks be to the Lord, he's not finished with me. And so we can patiently pray to the end of God making each of us complete and whole. Are you with me? So patience is key. So that's the first, post- the first thing that he gets at. There's this posture of patience that he's exhorting his readers to practice. Now he says, practice prayer. Look at verse 13 with me. Those of us who are called to be postured with patience then are called to a practice of prayer. If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Okay, so James goes back to the idea of trials, back to the idea of trouble that pervades his letter, and he says, are you suffering? Are you experiencing trouble? Let that person pray. Prayer is how James says to deal with our trials. Earlier in chapter one, he says, when you're facing trials, ask God for wisdom and believe that he'll give it to you. He will give it to you, right? Now he says, are you in trouble? Pray, right? Pray when you're not. Pray when you have sickness. Pray when you have sin in your life. Pray when someone else shares sin in their life. Pray because it's powerful. Do you see, James is saying, look, we are to share a life of prayer together. Now, we could probably spend an entire series on these few verses. There's loads of questions here. Things like, why call on the elders? Who are the elders? What's the point of anointing with oil? Uh, Why is the prayer, what's the prayer offered in faith? What if somebody isn't healed? Does that mean that they weren't? Well, we're going to try to get into a few of those questions. I can't solve them all for you today, Um, but have fun with that, right? Um, So there's just not enough time to get into all of it, but what I want to do is I want to highlight several aspects of what James is teaching about prayer here, and we can talk more if you're interested. First thing, 
he says, is prayer is this moment where we share our problems. We are to share our problems in prayer, right? Is it anybody among you having trouble? Let them pray. Um, problems, trials, anything uh, could fit here. Nothing's too large or too small to be excluded from sharing with the Lord and the church in prayer. And I think there's an overreaction sometime, sometimes where we kind of want to push against the laundry list of things for God, and so then we kind of minimize our problems and we don't share them. Instead, we just medicate them or deal with them outside of a relationship with the Lord. And James is saying, don't exclude your problems from the Lord. Bring them under relationship with Him. Bring them into uh, focus in a relationship with the Lord. Share your problems. It's critical to a praying community. And by the way, notice the assumption that James is making here. Christians have problems. Like, how, just sit with that one for a second, right? Like it just works against that moralistic thing that if, if I do good stuff for God, he's gonna not, you know, I'm not gonna have problems. Like I gave my life to Jesus and now my best friend's a unicorn and everything's happy, right? Like that's not, that's like not how it works. In fact, James' underlying assumption throughout the letter is that there's trials, like Christians undergo problems. Some of you are like, I don't know, I got a lot of them. Right? And so, don't miss the fact that there are trials that are not necessarily a result of we've done something wrong, right? There are natural consequences to sin, of course, but there's also Jesus saying, hey, in this world, you're going to have a lot of trouble, right? But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus promised problems. In fact, the more we pray, the more we might actually begin to discern, discern which things are problems and which things are just mere annoyances. In prayer, we find a, a perspective uh, that helps, helps us, right? And so, second thing he says is share your praises. Right? He's saying, look, if you're happy, don't hold back your praise. Don't hold back your gratitude. On one hand, it guards us against making an idol out of our circumstances and our emotions, right? It keeps us focused on the source of good things that comes from God, and we should praise Him for it. It also reinforces a relationship that's appropriate. We want to return praise to God for all things. It stokes our affection and our warmth for Him as we habitually praise Him for things that are going well. The third thing, though, that James says is that there is this uh, prayer is this place where we share our pain. So we share our problems and we share our praises in prayer. And we also share our pain, our, our physical pain, our suffering, our sickness is what he's getting at here. Um, this is maybe the most confusing part of the, the passage for us. Um, but what James is assuming here is that there is a ministry in your church of healing prayer, that there is prayer ministry happening in your church, that there are elders or overseers, people who uh, God has raised up to oversee the well-being of the church, and that those elders are invested in praying for the well-being of each person, that that's something that they're committed to. And by the way, we do this here. Like, we, we do this every week. There's prayer available every single week on the sides of the, 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 the front here where we offer prayer weekly. Um, and our elders do this thing, too, that, that when someone is sick, not like with a cold, but, you know, the picture here, by the way, is the elders praying over them. They can't get up, 
right? The, the elders are being brought to the sick person, right? This is somebody who's like demobilized by sickness. And so we do this, right? The elders, we just did this like a, a little bit ago, like a few weeks ago, and we just got an email from somebody after we prayed over this, this person. She was telling us how the Lord answered that. And it was awesome. She was like, yeah, I, I, I absolutely feel better. Um, and it was something chronic and really awful um, for her to endure. And the elders prayed, and like God works through that. Now, it's not because the elders are magical. They're just dudes who are trying to answer, a responsible, to answer responsibly to the call of caring for the church. And so you pray, right? Like, that's what you do. Now, a couple of comments here. Um, what's the deal with the oil? Like, why anointing with oil? Now, there's a, there's a bunch of opinions about this, but I think we can kind of boil it down to this. That oil is often symbolic on one hand of setting a per person apart for God's purposes, and it's also medicinal. Okay, now remember in Luke 10, Jesus is telling a story uh, about the, the good Samaritan, and that this Samaritan person finds this Jewish person beat up on the side of the road, and what, did, what does he do? Takes him, brings him to an inn, and he pays for, you know, health care for him, uh, and then he, he puts oil on him, right? Bandages the wound and applies oil, right? Because it's medicinal. They believed in the first century that that was helpful, and I, apparently it was. Uh, and so you apply a, a practical medicinal application. And so what's James getting at here? What is, this, what is the point? You, you apply practical medicine and prayer. That, that we're, what we're doing in this moment is we're coming to the Lord and we're saying, God, please heal in whatever means you will. Please heal in whatever means you want to. Um, and we're going to apply medicine, which is a gift from God. And, and we're going to apply faith, which is a gift from God. It's an integrative approach, right? Where you don't avoid the doctors because you say you trust God. Like, don't do that, right? Like, you go to the doctors because you trust God, right? And you go to prayer because you trust God. And he's saying, be integrative about this. We're trusting God by asking in prayer and by going to the doctor, right? And so our, our elders don't apply oil here, I think, for that reason. Uh, you could see Andy Sen, who's actually a doctor. He's an elder, too. But um, I wouldn't see any of the other elders uh, for any medical purposes. Just <laughs> don't do it. But go to him for prayer. Go to each other for prayer. He also sees the church body sharing in this ministry of prayer. This is a everybody plays this game kind of moment. And so um, the other thing that gets abused in this passage here is the idea of a prayer of faith bringing healing. And so people often conclude that if someone isn't healed, then somebody didn't believe enough. Good idea, bad idea. Bad idea. Here's why. Biblically, it doesn't add up. First of all, in Mark 9, right, and so the idea is if you are certain, if you have certainty and no doubts in your mind at all, then that will be effective. Well, the Bible doesn't really talk about faith as, as certainty. Um, it, it, it's interesting. Mark 9, Jesus engages this guy. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And the Bible says that's faith, right? Here's a guy who's like, I believe, and there's some stuff that I'm really struggling with, and I really want to overcome that. Will you help me overcome my trust issues, right? The Bible goes, that's faith. That's faith. Now, um, it also means that, you know, the perfection of faith is not the issue here. And by the way, Jesus asked in faith for the cup of wrath to pass from him, and he got a no. 
So does that mean Jesus' faith was weak? What about Paul when he asked three times for the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians to like, be taken away? And he kept getting to know. Does that mean the Apostle Paul's faith is futile and weak? He messed up if he would have believed harder. Oh, come on, right? The guy got flogged a bazillion times for the cross of Christ. I think he believed just fine. No, um, what it means is faith is about trusting a God who sometimes chooses to do what we ask, but always does what we need. And so simply the believer in Jesus when ill, should come and ask for prayer, should receive prayer and expect God to respond, right? And the elders in particular here are the people who are committed to the well-being and the care of the church. And there are times when God heals in the present, right? And others when we, we can anticipate only our eventual healing at Christ's return and the resurrection. Uh, if there were a simple formula here and we always got what we wanted, it wouldn't be faith. Um, James says that prayer is to be offered in faith um, by those caring for the sick, and that means that we pray with submission to the sovereign will of a good God, both surrendered and expectant, okay? All right, we can, let me keep moving for the sake of time. There's more we could always say there, but the fourth thing we see here is that we share in prayer, we share our pardon. So we share our problems and our praises and our pain. We also share our, our pardon. Here's what I mean by that. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Now, this is a brilliant Christian discipline that is highly fruitful and widely underpracticed, in my opinion. Um, it's a wonderfully freeing thing to own your mess before a brother or sister and experience grace. It is absolutely beautiful. Um, so, you know what we do in our culture when we sin against somebody? We typically avoid them, right? Because we don't live in a first century world of villages. We can, we can avoid people that we've wronged pretty easily in Portland. Um, and relationships typically last as long as we're able to keep from hurting somebody, right? Which keeps relationships in the shallow end of the pool for life unless you have a discipline or a practice of confession and repentance, or confession, repentance, and forgiveness. Without those, relationships are doomed to shallowness. Here's what James is saying. He's saying there's two types of confession. I think both are implied here. One is highlighted. He says, confess your sins to one another, or to each other. Um, this is not primarily confess your sins before God to each other, but your sins to each other, right? Um, so the rule of thumb here is uh, confess your sins as widely as the effect of it. And so when I lose my temper with my whole family, guess what? The confession circle goes as wide as the minivan. That's true. Like, guys, I, hey, I was really impatient back there. I need to own that, right? Or if I just sin against my wife, I confess to how I've sinned to her. I don't need to go around shopping that out to everybody else to get their opinions, right? That's, that's actually just attention-seeking behavior. James um, is also saying why we should confess. He says, we should confess so that we may be healed. In other words, he says, don't confess your sins to somebody so that you can show how complex you are or how dark you are or whatever other reason than for healing. He says, confess so that you can be healed. Don't, don't go talking about your sin unless you actually want to be healed. And so this confession should bring healing, not another wound. And when we confess our sins that we've done to each other, it needs to be a healing thing, not a wounding thing. 
Um, and so that means we confess when we've actually done sin to them, not maybe just thought sin about them, right? I mean, one time, when, when I was dating my wife, uh, one of my good friends was, uh, I think he was just married, and uh, she, the wife of my friend had not yet met Lauren, who sat down at dinner. Uh, well, I think it was like Applebee's, which was problem number one. Like, don't ever, like, why? What were we thinking? Anyway, um, like heartburn for days. And so we, uh, we sat down, and I remember this woman saying to my, my then-girlfriend, now wife, like, I need to confess something to you. I, I've hated you for a long time. Lauren's like, you just met me. To now. Like, we don't know each other. Like, so was that a healing confession? No, that was a wounding confession, right? It's like, what, what is that about? Like, that's just so weird. So, right, you don't say like, I just, I, I've, I confess I thought you were a jerk. You say, no, hey, I need to confess that I've been distant from you. I need to confess that I've been sharp with you because I misjudged you. That's a good confession, right? Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that we don't also need to have somebody we confess our more private sins to, right? The sins before God. Um, when we have a pattern or a struggle or we're caught in something or stuck in a, a pattern or behavior, an attitude or with an idol that is distracting us or doing railing us spiritually, we have a gift in accountability with one another. We have a gift in sharing that burden with another brother or sister to allow them to get into our business and know us and so we might be healed. But um, we cannot have Christian community, genuine community without a discipline of confessing our sins to one another. We need to be able to be in, our, in each other's business about this stuff. Um, in fact, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, that this is a necessity in relationship with him, that our relationships with each other become an obstacle to our relationship with God apart from confession. And here's what I mean. Jesus says, hey, look, if you're bringing your gift to the altar, if you are worshiping and you realize a brother or a sister has something against me, leave the gift at the altar, go and be reconciled. Go do business with that person who has sin who has something against you or you've sinned against them. And maybe you might not even agree about it. You might not even think, yeah, they're right and justified to feel that way. You, you might not even agree yet, but Jesus says you have an obligation, so go and hear him out. And when you hear him out, you may have a change of perspective. You may be humbled. You may have a paradigm shift. You may realize I've sinned unknowingly. Or maybe you realize that I have a pattern in other areas that I didn't know about. And so that means we need to go to each other. I have a bit, just a baseline assumption about human relationships, and that is this, I'm going to hurt you. I don't know how, I don't know when, if I did, I would avoid it. But I know for certain, I'm going to bum you out at some point. I, I just I haven't figured out how yet, right? You're gonna help me with that. And when you do, I'm gonna own it. I'm gonna confess it, I'm gonna say that's wrong, I'm gonna do my best to repent of it, and I'm gonna lean on you for grace and forgiveness. I'm gonna try to break that pattern so it doesn't happen again. And when you bum me out and you own it, I'm gonna do the same thing to you. I'm gonna say, yeah, they're right, that, that, that hurt. I forgive you, right? Like that's baseline assumption. Otherwise, human relationships are not happening. They're not getting anywhere, okay? Baseline assumption, we're going to sin against each other. And so we need this work, this tool that God gives us of confession. So what does confession look like? Matthew, or Luke actually gives us a brilliant example of it. Jesus shares this story in Luke chapter 15, and it's a brilliant example and model of confession. It's a story of a father who had two sons. 
It's in Luke 15, and one son slavishly worked for the father. The other son was just kind of a, he was a rebel. He wanted to do his own thing. And so he said to the dad, essentially, I want my inheritance now. In other words, I wish you were dead. I want to go take my, your stuff. I, w- I don't want you. I want your stuff. I want to go live my life my way. Like he Frank sinatra it over to another town, and then he, he, he spoiled, spoiled, uh, spoiled all of his income. He, did, he just absolutely ran his life into the ground, and he's there in a pigsty, literally in the mud, and he comes to his senses and realizes I was wrong. And this is what he says. I will set out, I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Here's what he's doing. This is brilliant. He identifies his sin grieves God. That's fundamental. Like this is, this is, this is grievous to God. I've sinned against heaven. And then he owns how his sin has hurt the relationship. I've sinned against you, right? Uh, then he says this, and I think this gets missed a lot. He says, make me like one of your hired servants. What's that about? This is actually vital and so important. This third aspect of how the prodigal confesses shows that when we confess our sins, that when we've hurt each other, when we've sinned against another, when we confess that sin, we don't demand the conditions of how we are received back. Are you with me? Right? He, he says, we, we say, hey, you, you don't have to have me back in the, in the way that it was before. I understand I lost trust. I understand I I hurt you and I I damaged this aspect of our relationship. And so I'm coming back to you saying I want a relationship and I will happily be in a relationship at the level and to the degree that you are willing to receive me. Do do you see how vital that is? So often confession becomes a, a power play, a control and manipulation device that says, well, you have to. The Bible says God says. Well, no, the Bible doesn't say and God does not say, actually. He says uh, to forgive, but he also teaches us that trust is earned, right? And so uh, we come back and we say, I'm not going to make demands. I'm not going to make demands. Um, I'll come back to you and I will work at what I have hurt, right? When, when you confess, you're saying, I'm going to do this, right? So it doesn't happen again as best as I can. Husbands, please grab this, okay? Like take that to the bank with you today, right? That when we wound, we own it, and then we come back and we say, hey, I'm not making demands on how you have me back. I just want a relationship, and I'm willing to work to rebuild it, okay? That's confession, all right? Good news for us. And it's absolutely vital, too, that we don't confess for any other reason than the one James is pointing out, which is to be healed, okay? He says, Look, if, you're just, if you just desire right, to show off how self-aware you are right, or any other selfish reason, you're not going to end up being healed. Right? You have to want restoration. Uh, okay, lastly, the last thing that James does here is he shows us one more dimension uh, of this, this wise Jesus way. Right? And uh, James encourages us not only to seek our own healing through confession, but the healing of others. And so he says this in verse 19, My brothers and sisters... Uh, If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So confession is this beautiful discipline where we say, hey, I've blown it. 
I, I got stuck in a pattern. I, I, I walked in this way that was strained from the way of Jesus. But now he gives us a pursuit of restoration, right? And this is a discipline where we go towards someone else and say, I'm, I've, you've strayed from the way of Jesus, okay? You're caught in something. You're stuck in a pattern here that's walking away from Jesus. Now, James ends saying that, that this is what you do when you have sin. You confess it. And now, this is what you do when someone in your community, in your relational sphere has sin that's driving them away. It's actually a pattern. They're wandering. It's not like they've erred once. It's like, no, this is a, they're walking away. Then you seek their healing by pursuing them. Do, do you see how these fit? Right? It says, be patient, right? Be patient with God and with others. And then be praying. Be praying because it's God who's doing the work and he's the one who has to help us. And now be pursuing patiently and prayerfully dealing with ourselves first and then those who've wandered. Do you see how absolutely integral this passage is and how it works together as a whole thought unit? It, see, if you're lacking patience or if you're lacking prayer, you won't get the pursuit of this wandering person right. If you're lacking patience, you're gonna be burdensome in your relationship with them. You're gonna demand that they get further than they can uh, too, uh, more quickly than they can. And if you don't do it prayerfully, confessing your own stuff first, you're gonna end up being hypocritical in your pursuit of them. And so you absolutely have to have a pattern of patience and prayer as you pursue others. And so this wandering person then is somebody who's wandered from the way, James says, who wandered away, not just like, hey, you sinned once or twice. It's, no, you have a pattern that's moving you away. You're, you've, you've actually... Uh, like moved away from obedience and distanced yourself from God's people. And you have a pattern here. And then that's the wandering person. And James says in Galatians 1, 6, 1, he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, that's the idea of they're entrapped in something. They can't get out on their own. They're stuck in it. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, Paul says, should restore that person gently, gently. And he says, but watch out for yourselves or you too may be tempted. I always approach redemptive relationships with an eye on your own heart. Um, Charles Spurgeon once said in a sermon, like, praise God if he uses you to convert someone else. But if you've been used to convert someone else, don't be too certain that you yourself are converted. Right? It's like, oh, okay, well, thank you. Hashtag Spurgeon thoughts. Like, that's hard stuff. But yeah, right? When God uses us, don't, don't get haughty, don't get prideful, don't get boastful. So the object of our pursuit is this person who's moving away from God, someone who's uh, been in the fold, so to speak. And so who's to join the pursuit of restoring that wandering person? Is this a special ops team? No, this is actually any of you, James says, any of you. This is a pursuit for any Christian, every Christian actually. Um, not special forces, it's actually just Christian work. We pursue anyone who's wandering away from God and the pursuers are any Christian people who are walking with God. And James says that the person wandering is wandering from the truth, that they're falling into a habit of sin or a pattern, habitually moving away from Christ. And you know what happens when you habitually move away from Christ? You lose some stuff, right? You lose a sense of God's nearness. You lose a sense of assurance of your salvation. Right? That you are loved and forgiven and united to Christ. You lose that sense. And in short, I don't think James is saying that Christians lose their salvation. 
I, I think this is a warning about people who wander and don't ever become restored. I think that the people who wander and don't ever re- become restored are people who reveal that they were never genuinely converted. I think so. But the danger is that when you walk away, you think that you've heard it all. People who walk away, they go, you know, I know all that, right? I know all that. And so it makes it doubly hard to bring that person back. And so when you walk away intentionally, you risk something. You risk growing a very cold heart to the Lord. And that is serious business. And James says, that is serious business. Because when you spare that person from that road, you are sparing them from death. Right? And so James is saying, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way, they're saving them from death, and it is serious business to wander. And why do we pursue that wandering person? To bring them back, James says. You pursue to bring that person back, not to beat them up with their sin, not to prove something about yourself, but as in confession we seek our own healing, so in pursuing the wandering person, we're seeking their return because we believe that nothing is so good as to be in fellowship with the Lord and his bride. And so we do all we can to welcome them back gladly with a grace and restoration. So that means that the motive for the pursuit can't be anger and it can't be self-righteousness. It has to be grief over sin because you love the person and you long for them to be with the Lord. Are you with me? See, James says, When we restore, what we're doing is we're joining in Jesus' mission of seeing people brought back into relationship with him. And what do we do when we do it? It says it covers a multitude of sins. Who covers a multitude of sins? Jesus and him alone. And when you partner with Jesus, you get to be someone who helps administer that grace. And so there's this posture of patience. There's this practice of prayer and this pursuit of restoration that James exhorts the church to live in. And you know that you can live this way because they're not just ideals. This is actually part of the fabric of a Christian community to live this way. See, we can endure loss, we can face rejection, we can patiently pursue others simply because we have been pursued. It's the joy of the gospel that drives us when Jesus told that parable in Luke 15 about uh, the, the lost son and the elder brother who stayed outside of the joy of the father, refusing to go in and celebrate, who refusing to be a brother to his wandering brother, what he was doing is he was showing the Pharisees their hearts. He's saying, you're like this. You're self-righteous. But the gospel is that we have a true elder brother who pursued us, who got into the pigsty with us, Right? He didn't let us just wander. He came after us. He didn't just wait for us to be drawn back to him. He came to us to draw us into relationship with him. He's the true elder brother that we actually need. He left heaven to join us in our pigsty, and he came to us at his expense, the expense of his very life, so that we might be brought back. And he shed his blood so that he could cover a multitude of sins. A multitude of sins, the sin of the world, friends. And so thus we can patiently wait because it's his patience that's led to our salvation. He's been patient with us. We can wait. And we pray honestly and we can confess openly because we know that when we confess, we're met not with judgment and exclusion, but embrace and healing forgiveness. And we can pursue people relentlessly because we have been pursued by a God who became flesh 
in Jesus. So here's where we'll land this morning. Let me just encourage you today to be moved by the gospel. Be moved by this. For your sake and for the kingdom, be restored today. Maybe today you just need to address a grumble that's just been going on for too long. Address it with Jesus and forgive it and choose to put it to death today. Others of you, you need to do confession. Maybe first with the Lord to acknowledge, God, I see where I've wandered from you. And I call it out and I agree with you. And oh, thank you, Lord, that you offer forgiveness, that you promise that when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness in Christ. Praise be to God. And maybe you've got something where someone here in the room has something against you, where there's been sin done to each other. We're going to sing a song in a minute about come to the altar, go to each other in that moment. Pray with each other in this room today. Maybe you are called to restore someone today. Maybe there's someone in your circle that you've just allowed to wander and it's time to no longer be passive, but to prayerfully and gently pursue them in the spirit and love them and invite them back into fellowship through repentance. Maybe today simply you just need to be restored. Maybe you came here today under duress. You didn't want to come to church at all. But in the process, God has been stirring your heart and you recognize today you need to be restored to Christ, to, to your creator whose mission it is is to reconcile you to himself. Don't miss the opportunity today to respond to that grace and receive forgiveness in a relationship with God. Be restored to your creator by trusting Christ today. Ali's gonna come and close with this song. And as we do, I invite you to our prayer teams on the wings. You have trouble, you have pain, you have praises. Come, receive prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy, your grace, your steadfast love that you have patiently pursued us to restore us to yourself. And so, Lord, we long in the power of your spirit to live in light of the gospel today. Stir us, Lord, um, to live in this way that James is exhorting us because of Christ who has loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.